Today we gather to consider one of the heaviest, if not the heaviest, topics that we could consider. It is so heavy and so sobering that it is also, not surprisingly, the most controversial. Is hell forever? Is hell forever? It seems too much even hateful, vindictive, to think of a place of punishment lasting forever. seems impossible for a God of love. God says in the Bible that he is love. And certainly it doesn't sit well with our 21st century sensibilities. And so this topic, this doctrine, is usually the first orthodox belief to be surrendered. It is usually the first to go, and it's easy to understand why. But where it disappears, mark my word, you will lose all Orthodox Christianity in time. This is essential to understanding the nature of God, the person of Christ, and the work of the gospel. There is no good news apart from this bad news. For sure, sermons on hell are extremely rare. Sermons on eternal punishment are even more so. It's perhaps likely that most of the people right now in this room have never heard a sermon on eternal punishment. Those two words are hard to say. They're even harder to think about. And as passages like the one we're going to be in today in Revelation chapter 20 that would not get a hearing apart from verse by verse expository preaching that submits itself to the full authority of the Word of God. Beloved, these are the passages that I would rather skip, that every preacher would rather skip. Passages about eternal punishment. So turn in Revelation 20 for our text this morning. It's four verses, seven through 10. And as I read the text, I want you to look for my outline, which is this, three reasons why hell is forever. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from heaven. And devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Three reasons why hell is forever. Number one, 
because Satan deserves it. If you've been with us in Revelation, last week we were in the previous passage where we talked about the millennial kingdom, a reign of Christ on earth that would last a thousand literal years. And now we come very quickly in time to the next era, and that is after these thousand years are completed, verse 7 says, whenever they are finished, whenever they have been accomplished. Same word Jesus used when he spoke from the cross, it is finished. Whenever this decreed amount of time has come to its appointed end, Satan will be loosed from his prison. And he will come out and immediately deceive the nations. One thousand years later and it's business as usual. He comes out of the abyss and he doesn't have to think about it. He's been thinking about it for a thousand years. He is like a released prisoner that walks out of jail and robs the first store he sees. There is no change. In this evil being, there is no remorse whatsoever. There is no repentance. There is no truth in him. And so he comes out lying right out of the gate. We have to remember, since his fall, eons ago, since the fall of Lucifer, he has wanted worldwide worship. He has wanted worldwide dominion. He wants to be like God. He wants to be the one that everyone loves and serves. And a thousand years in a dark pit has not changed a thing. As Dr. Thomas says in his commentary, he has an incurable bent toward evil. And so he comes out deceiving the nations, it says there in verse 8. Makes me stop and just ask, what will this deception be? What could this deception possibly involve? Now, this is what I might call sanctified speculation. Perhaps the deception is, let's make the world what we want it to be. We are tired of the yoke of King Jesus. We are tired of Israel getting all the attention. We are tired of Jerusalem being the capital of the world. Let's make the world what we want it to be. Maybe the deception is, you know, finally, finally, we can wipe these Jews out once and for all. Maybe the deception is we can kill Jesus again. Jesus is present. Jesus is in his glorified body in Jerusalem, in the temple on his throne. He had been there for a thousand years. Let's kill him again must surely be part of the deception. Why does hell last forever? Because Satan deserves it. You need to remember this morning that hell was created by God primarily, as Jesus says, for Satan and the demons. And I want you to let that sink in for a moment. How bad must this place be that was created for Satan and demons. Allow your mind to imagine for a moment the damage and the harm and the death and the destruction and the suffering that these evil beings have brought to God's good creation. What they did there in the garden to Adam and Eve, what he did there as the serpent undermining God's good creation and what he has continued to do every day since 
How wretched, how miserable, how horrific, how painful must a place be that was prepared for Satan and his demons. Hell is forever because Satan deserves it. Number two. Hell is forever because man is forever rebelling. He comes out and he deceives and he gathers, it says, from the four corners. That's just a euphemism for the whole earth. Every direction, north, south, east, and west. He gathers a multitude to join his final rebellion. It's further described for us in this uh, sort of riddling phrase, Gog and Magog. Now this is an allusion to Ezekiel 38 and 39, where Gog was a human being, a ruler, and Magog, the people. And both of them, there in Ezekiel 38 and 39, are in rebellion against God, and they're sworn enemies of Israel, and they will swoop down from the north and attack Israel... But all of that that is described there in Ezekiel 38, 39 is before the millennial kingdom. Here it is clearly after the millennial kingdom. So it is not the same. It's not the same war. It's not the same attack. It's not even the same nations identically. What we have here on the other side of the thousand year reign of Christ is history repeating itself. At the front end of the millennial kingdom, you had Armageddon, where Satan gathered a great army to attack the people of Israel in the land of Palestine, seeking to wipe them out. And Jesus returns in the nick of time and stops that Armageddon war and rescues his people and establishes his kingdom. Now, a thousand years later, it's deja vu all over again. Satan has been released, and this time it's not Armageddon, it's called simply the war. The war. Some have called this the final war. The ultimate war. And so he is loosed. He comes out deceiving and lying. And he gathers them from all over the world. And then look at these words at the end of verse 8. For man is forever rebelling. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. This is the Bible's way of saying they cannot be counted innumerable human beings joining the rebellion of Satan against the people of Christ and the person of Christ. And here, unlike Armageddon and the Gog and Magog of Ezekiel 38-39, they don't just come from the north, they come from every direction of the planet. So it begs the question, why did John confuse us like this, right? Why did he drop in Gog and Magog? Well, it's uh, easy to explain, actually. This was a common expression of Jewish rabbis of his day. This would be a term that his readers would have been familiar with. Jewish rabbis would use Gog and Magog as a common expression for nations in rebellion against God. And so John is using it here not like Ezekiel used it of specific nations from the north. He's using it symbolically, representatively. Of all the rebel nations that will join this final war against Christ. In other words, instead of listing nation after nation after nation after nation, some 100 or 200 nations, whatever it might be, he just sums them all up and just calls them Gog and Magog. And it just represents then this 
hatred toward God and this hatred of Israel and this hatred of Christ. The point being, man is forever rebelling against God. So picture it now. We've had a thousand years of Christ on his throne. A thousand years of peace and prosperity and perfect justice. A thousand years of a benevolent dictator doing what God intended Adam to do, but he failed to do. But the second Adam does it. And he has brought more blessing to the planet because Israel is redeemed and the world is as it should be. And it's just been paradise regained and the curse has been lifted. And as soon as Satan is released from his pit, man falls right in rebellion with him. Flocking to him. This is an unprecedented mutiny on a colossal scale. And you're scratching your head and you say, how is this possible? How is it possible? Jesus has been visibly present in his glorified state. How can this possibly happen? It happened because millions of people played a charade of feigned obedience to Christ. Millions of people were only outwardly obedient, not inwardly obedient. Not inwardly surrendered. Satan's release will bring out their true colors. You remember I told you at the return of Christ, there's going to be living people who go into the kingdom in their natural bodies. And they're going to procreate. Jews and Gentiles, they're going to procreate. And they're going to repopulate the earth because billions have been killed in the tribulation, right? And so they're going to repopulate. A thousand years is a long time. And people are going to live a longer amount of time. A hundred years is like ten in our day and age. And nine hundred years old, it'd be like ninety in our day and age. It's going to go back to the antediluvian age spans in the millennial kingdom. And so the earth is going to have millions upon millions, perhaps billions of people again repopulating the earth. And when Satan comes out of that pit, the true colors of multitudes will be revealed. You say, how is this possible? Because, listen, every unbeliever is easily deceived by Satan. If you're here this morning and you're lost, you haven't put your faith in Christ, you are easily led astray by the devil. You are no match for the devil. He owns you in deception. You're buying his lies and his fraud and his gold that isn't gold. How is this possible? What this passage shows us so undeniably is that man is completely corrupt. Man is totally depraved in the words of the reformers. That means we're not as evil as we could possibly be. That means that our whole being is affected by sin. Our minds, our wills, our hearts, our emotions, our feelings. Everything is tainted. Everything is defective. And this proves it beyond a shadow of a doubt. Satan has been locked up for a thousand years. Christ has been present for a thousand years. And people are still prone toward evil. Millions then during the millennial kingdom won't truly believe. Just as millions today in churches don't truly believe. They're playing a game, playing a charade. And and this has been true since the fall of man. It's really not that much different, if you think about it, from the Pharisees at the tomb of Lazarus. You You remember the scene, John 11? There are people at the tomb of Lazarus. He has been dead. It's going to smell. Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And a dead man walked out of a grave and they saw it with their own eyes. And instead of falling on their face before King Jesus and begging for forgiveness, they walk away and they say to themselves, now we've got to kill Lazarus too. 
Now he's in the way of our rebellion against God. Well, that's not much different from that. These were religious men, the Pharisees. These were men who knew the Bible. These were men who were in church every week. And they wanted to kill Lazarus. Because he was the evidence that this was the Messiah. By the end of the thousand year reign, multitudes, multitudes will long to throw off the yoke of King Jesus. All they need is a leader and a plan. And he shows up and they flock to his suicide mission. Beloved, the lesson is clear. The lesson is clear. Do not believe secular psychology. The lesson is clear. Man's evil lies deep within his own heart. Man's evil is not the result of his culture, not the result of his environment, not the result of his upbringing, not the result of the people around him. The evil lies within. And this proves it clearly. Certainly our culture, our environment, our upbringing, our parents, our friends can influence us and contribute Bad company corrupts good morals. Certainly these things are true, but they're never the source. The source is within our wicked, depraved, black, dark hearts. As Toby said, we are more evil than we can ever imagine. It just takes the right set of circumstances for the depravity of the human being to come to full blossom. Man left alone, mark my words, man left to himself, every single one of them can only war against God. That's all he's capable of. He's not capable left to himself to serve Jesus. He's only capable of rebellion. Fallen man hates God's authority over him. Fallen man hates submission, hates the idea of submission, hates the practice of submission, the thought of submission, being told what to do, when to do it, how to do it. Everything in fallen man's being, every fiber of his, of his spiritual DNA pushes back against that and shakes a fist in the face of God and says, no one will rule over me but myself. I am king, I am Lord, I am God of my life. That's the heartbeat of every fallen sinner. We go astray from the womb. And we love our darkness and our sin. This rejection is so deep-seated and so eternal in the heart of man that its punishment must match. It must match. Hell is forever because man is forever rebelling. I ask you the question, at what point could God stop punishing unrepentant sinners? The answer is never. Hell is forever because people in hell sin forever. They keep sinning. They keep rebelling. They keep hating God. They rage against God forever and ever, and so he punishes them forever and ever. That's why Jesus described it as a place of the gnashing of teeth. The gnashing of teeth. So number one, hell is forever because Satan deserves it. Number two, hell is forever because man is forever rebelling. Number three, hell is forever because God is holy. He's thrice holy. He's holy, holy, holy. He is the Lord God Almighty. He is a consuming fire, the Bible says. Consuming fire. And what we see in this passage 
Even though God's name is not mentioned, God's hand is all over it because this fire comes from where? From heaven. Fire came down from heaven, that's a way of saying from God, and devoured them. Devoured them. God is holy. I I, I struggle with what to call this third reason. Because God wins. Hell is forever because God always wins. Hell is forever because God cannot change. Hell is forever because God is holy. He will not budge. He just won't. And he will not cool off in his wrath and rage against man's sin. What is the wrath of God? It is his settled disposition against all that is evil. His settled disposition against everything that does not conform to his will. And this fire here is said to eat these rebels. It consumes them. It devours them. But it does not annihilate them. Because this lake of fire where Satan will be cast in verse 10 is the place where the Antichrist, who is a human being, and the false prophet, who is a human being, have been for a thousand years. And they're still there, verse 10, because they have not been annihilated because this is a place of eternal punishment. Why fire? Why was it that fire came down from heaven and devoured them, verse 9? Because fire is a prelude to their, their eternal destiny. This is like Mount Carmel. And Elijah there on Mount Carmel. And the false prophets of, of, of Baal have been gathered. And they've set up this sacrifice, right? And Elijah calls on God. And fire comes down from heaven. And consumes the sacrificial animals. And the wood and the rocks and the water and everything. It's like that. Except here people are the offering not an animal in our modern way of understanding this fire came down from heaven I thought of Nagasaki and Hiroshima and nuclear weapons that actually detonate in the air not on the ground if you've seen documentaries on this and it's just an instant obliteration right a, a, a complete melting and Destruction and devouring of such intensity. God moves swiftly here then. It really isn't a battle. It isn't a war. As they've gathered for the war, he's allowed them to gather. He's allowed them to be deceived. They're, they're going through the motions. They apparently think they're going to be successful. They've come up on the plain. They've surrounded the city of Jerusalem. They've surrounded the camp of the saints. They probably think they're about to win. They have more people uh, than imaginable to overcome them and then just instantly God swiftly devours them with fire from heaven he brings this most foolhardy strategy in the history of war to an abrupt ending there is no fight there is no war it's all over right now it's over and the commander-in-chief is thrown into the lake of fire and he is the third to arrive the message a translation I don't frequently look at but I did last night calls it by a proper name, lake, fire, and brimstone. And I try to just get my mind around what this place might be like. It's literal fire. It's it's some sort of lake. I, I thought of it like this. Perhaps it's a boiling cauldron of sulfur and brimstone. 
perhaps it's like bubbling lava, maybe like burning quicksand. Whatever the case, once you're in this lake, this lake of fire, verse 10, where the devil was summarily thrown, where the beast and the false prophet are also, whatever this is, even a spirit being like Satan can't get out of it. We don't read of any fence, any gate, any door, anything that has to be sealed on the lake of fire. Once you are there, there is no exit, there is no escape, you cannot remove yourself from it. And even spirit beings who don't have bodies like we do are burning in this place. The temperature is never turned down. Look at verse 10. Look at the last line of verse 10. They will be tormented. It's the word for tortured. It's the word for agonized. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Day and night is metaphorical. It's a place of outer darkness. So it's really nighttime all the time. But he uses a metaphor of day and night. It speaks of unceasing, unrelenting, unending passage of torment. Daytime brings no relief after the long night of pain. And nighttime brings no sleep or rest after the long day of pain. And so it's endless days and endless nights of endless torment. And I think perhaps this is an allusion to the passing of time. The consciousness of the passing of time in this place. Which I think would make it even more severe in its punishment. If I had no sense of time, if I had no sense of past, present, future, if all of that just disappeared, I don't think it would be as bad as if I had the passage, the sense of the passing of time. Understanding that this place is a place of forever and ever time. So hell is forever then because God is holy and he cannot change. God simply cannot relax his holiness. At no point can he just ease up on his righteousness. And you need to understand, for God to do so would be sin on God's part. For God to, at at one degree of lessened holiness, would be sin on the part of God. And therefore, it is not possible. Is there other support for this in the Bible? Well, certainly there is. Jesus, speaking in Matthew twenty-five forty-six, speaks of the lost goats. You know, the judgment where he separates sheep from goats. And he says of the lost goats, these will go away into eternal punishment. Jesus, in Mark nine forty-eight, described hell or the lake of fire as a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 these words, he said, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. He doesn't say retribution for those who do not know about God. For everyone knows about God. He says those who do not know God. He's speaking here of a personal relationship with God. God as your father through Christ as your savior. The the intimate, heartfelt affection for God. Because you have a knowledge of God. 
as the one who knows you and made you and loves you. He's going to deal out this retribution on those who do not have this personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And he says it another way to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They do not submit to the commands of the gospel, which is to repent and believe in Christ. They refuse to do that. And that's called disobeying the gospel. And he goes on and he says, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That's 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 to 9. So again, hell is unending because sin is unending. And so must be the punishment. And we just need to be aware here when Jesus speaks of the worm that will not die, when Paul uses such words, this, this anguish in hell is of two components. There is a mental suffering and there is a corporal or bodily suffering. And both of these will be forever. Why? Because Satan deserves it. And the place was made for him. Two, because man is forever rebelling. And three, because God is unchanging holiness. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this message, this passage, this truth this morning? I have three or four or five things I want to suggest to you. By way of application. Number one... Number one, don't ever joke about hell. Don't ever laugh about it. Don't ever joke about it. This is a real place with real people and real punishment. Don't ever say to someone in your mind or out of your mouth, go to hell. Don't ever say that. Don't ever think that. This place is more horrific than we could ever, ever imagine number two go and make disciples of Jesus Christ go with the good news that God has done a work to save hellbound sinners from a place of eternal punishment go with the good news of God go with the good news of Christ and preach the gospel to all creation Our purpose as a church is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. That comes from Matthew 28, where we're commanded to go and make disciples. Make disciples of children. Make disciples of teenagers. Make disciples of your neighbors, of your family members, of your co-workers, of your friends, your acquaintances, of total strangers. Go and make disciples. The realities of hell compel the Christian to care about the lost. Pray that God would break your hearts. Pray that God would break my hearts. Pray that God would bring revival to this church, to this city, to this nation. As millions are lost and millions are in rebellion against God. Even cloaked in the garments of religion. If this does not constrain us, if this does not compel us, if this does not move us to be done with the trivial things of life, to quit wasting our time and wasting our life and to start redeeming the time because the days are evil and an eternity of bad punishment is coming I don't know what would and what does number three what do we do with this examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith examine yourself this morning I ask you this morning are you still rebelling against God 
Are you still resisting his lordship? Are you still pushing back against his authority? Are you just all about a God of love and a God of tolerance and Jesus as Savior, but this whole idea of Jesus being master and ruler and Lord is a bit foreign to your thinking and to your lifestyle? Are you an almost Christian? Are you a partial Christian? Are you a half-in, half-out Christian? Are you still rebelling against God in your heart of hearts and that's why your life doesn't change? Because your heart hasn't changed? Has Satan deceived you this morning into thinking that you're truly saved when you're not? Because you're not surrendered to King Jesus? Listen, there are two colors in salvation. Number one is red. The color of blood. The blood of Jesus. You must hide under the blood of Jesus who was sacrificed on your account taking the wrath of God in your place. You must be washed in the blood. You must be under the blood. You must be redeemed by the blood. You are only saved by death. There is no forgiveness and there's no salvation apart from the shedding of blood. The color red. And then number two, the color white. And that is the white flag of surrender. (laughs) The white flag of I surrender all. I yield, I bow, I surrender. You're you're mine and I'm yours. I take all that you are and I give you all that I am. Christianity doesn't work for so many people because they're only partially surrendered to Christ. Red and white are the colors of salvation. That brings me to number four. After you've examined yourself, I want to call you this morning as we began our service. Now we will end our service to receive the good news. Receive the gospel. Take it into your soul, into your heart, into your life. The good news is God did not leave man to himself. If left to ourselves, all we will do is war against God. But God did not leave us to ourselves. God came down in the person of Christ. God came here to stop our rebellion. And he stopped it in the most unusual way imaginable. Not by crushing us into hell like we deserve, but by going to a cross and taking our hell. In our place. The Lamb of God took the lake of fire for you. That's the gospel. His words from the cross tell the story. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst and it is finished. He took the searing pain of the nails. He took the burning of his pure and innocent mind as our sin and our guilt was laid upon him. He took the full weight of God's wrath in concentrated form in a matter of hours. The one who is eternal took the eternal lake of fire in the place of sinners. And then he rose from the dead and he ascended to heaven and he sits at God's right hand and he commands all the world to turn from their sins and believe in the work he did on your behalf. We've got to receive the good news. Not just hear it, not just understand it, but take it in and build a life upon it and trust your eternity on it and say all of my eternity is in this one basket. If this is not true, then I'm damned to hell forever because this is all I'm believing in. This is my only hope is the righteousness of Christ and Him risen from the dead. Number five, you need to be warned this morning. You need to be warned by the text. If you do not turn around and receive Christ, all that awaits you is eternal fire. 
If you do not trust the Lord Jesus Christ, when you come to the great white throne judgment, you will be on your own. You will stand there only in your own righteousness, your own goodness, your own sinless perfection. That's all you will have, which is none, right? (laughs) Which doesn't exist. That's all you will have if you don't have Christ. I call every one of you here this morning who are lost, I call you in the name of Jesus to surrender your life to God before the lights go out and the flames rise. He is ready to receive you. You bow your heads with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you today that you are so full of grace and compassion. We thank you today that that love was demonstrated on a cross. There can be no doubt. And we thank you today that anyone here who turns to you, you are willing and able to save them. Anyone who is willing to have you, you will have them. Your arms are open wide. We thank you and praise you today that you will gladly welcome the repentant sinner this morning. Father, I thank you that uh, you sent Jesus and now you've sent the Spirit and he's here in this place because his word has been proclaimed and the offer is, is being made and the invitation is open right where sinners sit, right there in their sin, right there in their black hearts, they can come to Christ and be washed, be made new. Oh, God of heaven, will you save someone right now? We save someone from eternal torment. God, there's people we love that are not in this room. Our hearts break for them. We ask that you would intervene and you would arrest their lives and save them. God, I pray that you would help us to be bold with the gospel this week, to go and make disciples. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.